What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is one I'm really excited about. I recently sat down with Dion Palika, who is the co-founder and CEO of the online sneaker community, Soul Savvy. He broke down the entire business of sneakers for me, and it was a fascinating conversation. We talk about entrepreneurship, the economics of the sneaker business, building a product around community, the future of fundraising, and more. I love this conversation, and I think you guys will too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Underdog Fantasy. It's the best fantasy sports product on the market. And now they have a special March Madness offer you don't want to miss. Underdog Fantasy is riding with the Houston Cougars. They're providing a massive odds boost for every game that Houston plays. And if you include the featured Houston player for each game in your pick'em slip, your potential payout gets boosted, depending on how many picks you add in the slip, with up to a 40 times payout if you win a pick five slip. It's simple. Head to underdogfantasy.com, download their mobile app, sign up with the promo code POMP, P-O-M-P, and you'll see the Houston Cougars featured odd boost at the top of the pick'em lobby on Thursday, March 24th. Even better, if you listen to this podcast, Underdog will double your first deposit with up to $100 in bonus cash. So be sure to use code POMP, P-O-M-P, at underdogfantasy.com when you sign up to take advantage of this offer and their Houston Cougars odds boost. Next up is FTX. I'm sure you've heard of them by now, whether it's because of their partnerships with the Miami Heat, Golden State Warriors, the MLB, or Formula One. Whatever it may be, it's obvious that FTX is dominating the crypto conversation in sports. FTX US is a safe, regulated way to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Plus, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than any other exchange on the market. You can even buy NFTs on the FTX app from top ETH and Solana collections without getting hit with fees. Simply put, FTX gets it, and they want to make crypto exposure accessible, easy, and secure. Download the FTX app on your smartphone today and use code JOEPOMP, J-O-E-P-O-M-P, for a discount on trading fees and start building your portfolio in less than three minutes. It's literally that easy. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments, 
All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. What's up, everyone? We have a great episode here today. I'm with Dion Pralika. He's the co-founder and CEO of Soul Savvy, otherwise known as DP. He's told me he goes by. So DP, what's going on, man? How are you? Good, good, good. I'm in a blessed point in my life. My nine-month-old is now sleeping 12 hours a night, so I could not be any happier. <laughs> wow, incredible. Two of my brothers just had babies, and they claim that they're getting more sleep than ever, but that is total bullshit. As you know, they're only two or three months old at this point, so I don't believe them for a second. That first three months is actually not too bad, and I wish I had a, I wish I had appreciated it a little bit more because the next three to nine, you can let them know the next six months is going to be tough. I can give a dad advice. That's another. That's another pod. I was going to say we might have to to schedule that for another hour. But all right, dude, yeah. let's dig into to your business because I think it's fascinating. I think most people understand by now that sneakers is a category that's not going away, right? Not even from just a collecting perspective, but it's really an asset class now. People are buying and selling these. People are holding them as investments. People are collecting them for sure. And the utility ranges, right? So everyone has their own reasons. But let's break down what exactly Soul Savvy is for people who have never even heard of you guys. Yeah, absolutely. At its core, it's a community for people who love sneakers. Whether you're a collector and you don't wear anything or you wear everything, you just enjoy footwear and you keep that as part as your your lifestyle and who you are. I think it's collectors in a lot of different categories and they're passionate people. And what's kind of happened over you know, the last five years in the industry has been it has turned into an asset class, right? People do look at, look at it as, hey, I can buy this and sell this and make money. There's fractional ownership shares of sneaker companies, you know, doing those things, rares being one of them. And it's kind of, it's alienated the the core consumer, the collector, the fanatic. And in my opinion, those people drive any category, any space. They are the lifeline of that. And for me, I saw the dangers of what it meant to potentially, you know, lose those collectors as they age out or get frustrated. And I wanted to create something that helped people buy shoes for retail in its in its simplest form. And for me to, to do that, I wanted to start with community because that's the most powerful thing any company can have. So the companies that are producing the shoes, this is me like being completely naive about some of the process yeah. stuff, right? So the companies that are producing these shoes, are they basically not incentivized to stop the bots and stop people from doing this because they're selling out and like some weird world capitalism takes over and they just sell stuff or like, how does that work? I think there's definitely some of that that lingers in the space. I think overall, the answer would be would be no, these brands are trying, they are fighting and, and they're trying to stop bots, some doing a better job than others. You know, I love my people at Foot Locker. Their system is ancient and their system is not very good at stopping bots, for example. Nike is is knee deep in that fight. Shopify is doing an exceptional job. But there is some of that, right? Brands like to see their product sell out. You know, we live in that kind of hype drop culture. If your, if your product's gone in five minutes and you've ripped through a million in inventory, that looks good for the brand. It, it looks good. But what happens if you went through a million in inventory and your end customer actually didn't get it? And then now they kind of hate you and they don't trust the brand, right? So it's that really fine balance of like, how do we keep the hype thriving, but keep our customers happy? And that is it's a challenging thing to do for companies, big and small. Were you an entrepreneur before this? I was, I was. What yes. did you do before? I was co-founder for a sneaker blog, social affiliate platform called Kicksteals. Basically, we just helped curate blog era infancy days, where to buy shoes with a link. 
when there was no bots, right? Here's a link to buy a sneaker and then people would go and buy it. And that's actually how I came up on the problem for Soul Savvy was our revenue went down 30%. Our click-through rate was the same. All the data was telling me we should be making the same amount of revenue and it wasn't. And when I went into that, that research mode, I realized, oh, we're not making any money because bots are buying all the product and our customers can't get it. And that's ultimately what led me to realizing there's a problem we need to fix. So you send out the link on, we're talking about the old business now, yep. but you send out the link, people go to buy the shoes, they're interested in them. By the time they get there, they're already purchased. So you're looking at the data and it's saying, hey, look, just as many people, if not more, are actually going to purchase the shoes, but yep. there's no inventory left. Exactly. Because bots, at the time when they were really coming up, 2016, 2017, 2018, brands didn't know what was going on. They weren't fighting against them because it was it was ticketing before where bots were active, right? That's how we ended up with the uh, Better Online Ticketing Sales Act around Ticketmaster was like, you couldn't get a ticket in 2014, 2015 if your life depended on it, right? And that led to consumers being frustrated, right? And then bots pivoted and the brands weren't ready for it. And ultimately it was just stuff was flying off shelves. And that's how you end up with photos of people with wall stack fulls of sneakers. <laughs> so two questions over that. First off, how much are the people with the walls full of sneakers making doing this? Oh man. I mean, look, I don't, I don't know the exact number, but I've read enough articles about it that, you know, people are saying like, Hey, I'm bringing in a personally a million in revenue, just doing this with bots and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars easily in profit because if they're, they're treating it as a full-time job. Annually? Yeah. 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 And so what they go on there, they basically just get as many as they can through bots and yep. then resell them as quickly as they can and move them. Yep. Is that illegal or no? No, no. So you alluded to earlier the Ticketmaster problem, which I forget the name of the act that you named, but essentially they made it illegal, right? It's now against the law to do and they have protection in place, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's illegal to use software to automate the purchase of product. There's nothing wrong with any one person buying something and selling it. It's the problem if one person buys a hundred and sells it, right? Now it's taking it away and creating problems throughout the whole ecosystem. So that that very probably overgeneralized sense, right? Of just, hey, you can't use software to buy something. That only applies to tickets though. Currently, that's what that was put under. And, and what happened through the pandemic was it wasn't just sneakers. It was PlayStation 5s, Xbox Ones, computer graphic boards. I mean, hell, people were trying to resell and, you know, hand sanitizers and masks, and they were getting arrested in British Columbia, right? People will sell things to make money. And again, I, I get it, capitalism, consumerism, whatever, but there's a line. There's a line that has to be drawn. And I think just in general, in commerce, it's it's getting dangerous that if buying product online means you also need a bot potentially, that's not a good experience for for anyone. Yeah, I, I don't think it's siloed to sneakers alone, right? Or even PS5s or whatever. It's whatever. People will do whatever they can to make money if there's an opportunity for arbitrage. So Absolutely. Trading cards, Funko Pops, it's all there. Yep, 100%. So you get this idea, right? You, you see a problem, you go out to solve it. Did you guys raise money immediately? You have a co-founder, right, first off? I do, yeah, Justin. Okay, cool. So you guys go raise money or bootstrapped it at first? No, bootstrapped it. We spent a solid two years just building and I wanted to understand what it meant to create a community, foster it, and then know how to properly scale it. I think a lot of people talk about you can't scale community and I disagree. There's a there's a way to do that and the answer to that is really cohorts of, of people. I didn't learn that right away, right? It took me some time to really get to get to know people in the process and how to structure a community and, and do the architecture behind it. And I wanted to start with the audience first. I'm not a developer or coder, I can't, I can't do any of that stuff. And and my thesis was always, if I can find the people who align with what we want to build, then when we're ready to build it, we'll have their support. And I'll have a feedback loop that I can reference for everything that we do. And that's really where we are today, because of it. 
Gotcha. And what was the product at first? Was it was it literally just a Slack channel and you were getting people in and they were paying a monthly fee for it? Yeah, that's it. It was a Slack community and people were just chatting about sneakers and you know, I was sharing my I, you know, I've been in the industry for a decade. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of things. I was sharing that insight with people and it was valuable information. Yeah. So it was a paid community essentially at first, just, just yep. via chat. Uh, okay. And then how fast did it grow? Oh, really slow for the first two years. March, 2020, we had about a thousand customers. And then I said, okay, I'm ready to fundraise. And then, uh, the pandemic hit, which scared me a little bit, but you know, we went for it anyways. And we spent the next, it took us nine months to raise our seed, but we, we went from a thousand to 3000 members. And then in 2021, we doubled and, and here we are now we have 7,000 paying subscribers. Nice. That's amazing. So what does a, I guess the next question would be like, what does a normal user look like a, norm, a normal member look like when they join? Yeah, it's really interesting. We have both spectrums. We have people who are just getting into sneakers in the last like one to three years and are fairly new to this. And we also have people who have been into this for like eight, nine, 10 years, a decade as, as far as sneaker collectors and buyers go. But generally, you know, in that like 25 to 34 range and just passionate about the space. And own a lot of sneakers or? Oh, yeah. 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 Average average member buys 30 to 40 pairs a year. Wow. Yeah. I'm, wow. I'm at personally at 600. <laughs> Per year or current collection? No, current collection. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, no. I'd be divorced if I was pulling that a year. <laughs> I was going to say, dude, this gets expensive, I'm sure. Yeah. What does that require from a financial standpoint for them to buy 20, 30, 40 pairs of shoes a year? Yeah. I mean, average sneaker is about $200. Quick math. Every 10 pairs you buy, you're spending $2,000. So it adds up quickly. I, th I, I think the sneaker experience for collectors and the fanatics in this space, I think is an easy $10,000 investment a year. But again, they're, they're passionate about it. They love it. They collect it. And as we've seen over the last, especially the last five years, I've been uploading product to our new marketplace feature just to show my collection. And I realized everything I own from 2018 is worth like three times the price. And I didn't even realize it. Right. And it's not my intent to sell, but it is something that is worth holding, even if your intent is to wear it currently. Have you seen any like investment funds pop up in this space or like hedge fund type buyers where they're, they're acquiring a lot of product or no? I haven't. It's crossed my mind. It's crossed my mind because there's value for us to hold valuable inventory. Um, again, if the shoe's worth $500 now, it's probably going to be worth $1,000 a year from now that's an asset for me from a customer perspective. Like, Hey, this thing, that's a thousand bucks. I'll sell it to you for $500. I don't think anyone would say, Oh, I don't want it for that price. Right. It's just constantly going up. And why do you think that the shoe will be worth a thousand in a year? If it's worth 500 now, just how much everything's going? No, up? I mean, look, it's, it's like any, let's just call, I can quote unquote asset, right? The brands release product that there's a, there's a, you know, there's a limit on the, on the production run, right? If, whether it's 50,000 or a hundred thousand, the most sought after sneakers tend to not ever come back. Collaborations, limited editions, they don't release. So at some point, it's just going to dwindle in supply, the amount of new pairs available to sell, the amount of people who are willing to sell it. And as the price goes up, people hold it tighter, right? You can see behind me my most prized sneakers, and they're some of the oldest and hardest to find at this point. And I'm not going to let them go because as a collector, I'm just too attached to them, right? So it's just the supply dwindles ultimately with every, with every passing year. Gotcha. So it's it's really just supply and demand dynamics. Because yeah. I asked, because I've certainly seen some of that on like the trading card side, right? There's there's definitely yeah. more, uh, I don't know if they're institutional buyers, right? They don't have that 
typical background, but it's it's people that have pulled together a large sum of money and are going out and investing in this from like an index perspective. Yeah, yeah. And guys, guys similar to you, right? That have knowledge of the space, have connections, can get things probably cheaper than they would be on the open market, and are able to flip them for a profit. So I, I think that's like certainly something that's going to continue. Yeah, I've seen it. I've I think there's business models that are trying to think that through. It's just. I think the hardest thing that is finding the customers and the users that want to participate in it, right? Which is why, again, I went back to like, I just want to find people who love the space and then I'll create around them because this is what they want. Yeah, it's not necessarily the person your your business is focused on anyways, right? It's yeah. it's much more the person that enjoys the shoes. Yeah. Do you guys have people that are, are mainly investing personally in shoes or is it more just still that enjoyment? No, I mean, look, I think... I think it's the enjoyment of it, but I don't think it's lost on anyone that, you know, if you do, especially at this point, rest in peace, Virgil, but if you own a piece of uh, something from the Nike Off-White collection, like it is a very valuable thing and you will probably wear it, but you'll, you'll take better care of it because you know, like this is something that is a part of sneaker history and, and you know, it will have value and appreciate. So I don't think that's lost on, on, on our audience, but at the end of the day, it's like, I just want to enjoy the space because I loved it watching Jordan wear Jordan ones, you know, in the nineties or whatever it might be. Yeah. What percentage of your collection do you actually wear? 600 shoes, we'll call it. I have worn everything. I I make sure to wear, to wear everything. It's just, again, I have two feet and we've been in the pandemic for yeah. two years. So my sneaker habits have not been <laughs> the smartest uh, in the last little run, but uh, yeah, I make an effort to wear everything. All right. And then what was the fundraising process like when you guys actually went out to go raise capital? Did people get the model? Was community because communities become more important, right? I think it's become a buzzword of sorts with especially what's going on in crypto and web three and all of that kind of stuff. But you guys were probably a little early to that train. Yeah. So was was it difficult raising capital? It was really hard. I I took two hundred meetings and got two hundred no's, thankfully over Zoom. But I got I got politely laughed out of a lot of rooms early on because it was like, You want me to invest? in community and you don't have a product and you don't have a tech stack and you don't have anyone technical on the team. And this was like typical, you know, San Francisco VC thinking type of thing. But what happened over the course of really the first year of the pandemic was like, we were all trapped inside. We were all just locked away. We couldn't go to the movies. We couldn't see our friends. We couldn't travel. And we realized like, what do I have? And for us, our members, that's why I said to you, I was a little scared at first. I thought people were going to cancel who in the middle of the pandemic while they're losing their job, want to pay $30 a month for a sneaker community. It turned out all of them, our, our churn was never better because they saw like, this is the only thing I have in my life that makes me feel like I'm getting human connection. I'm involved in something. And I think that happened to everyone. I think that happened to everyone, VCs, in- investors, consumers. We realized like there's a part of our lives that we can enjoy digitally. We don't have to go full metaverse and, and lose everything that we have in person, but um it made everyone value community. And, and by the time it was really October and we had been locked up for six months, my seed round was, it, it came together really, really easy. And so did my, my A. Gotcha. Yeah. I think part of it too, that, that people often forget is like everything accelerated online, especially communities because of yep. that, that, that point, right? You're at home alone. You want people to talk to, you want friends, right? Yeah. But ultimately too, like all asset prices were up a lot. They printed a bunch of money, right? Like savings accounts hit an all time high of what people had. So sure. There was a lot of pain and I don't think it's probably the right thing to diminish that. But ultimately, there's a lot of people that did pretty well financially from from asset appreciation if they owned assets. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, I think it's match.com that said, friendship making community building is going to be a bigger business for them than dating over the next decade. Because 
you know, when we think about like, who are our friends right now, it's probably people we met in high school or college. And like, it's really hard to make friends as you get older. And I think as we go more digital and, and, and metaverse and web three, that, you know, community building and meeting new people is going to be really important to our social experience online. Yeah. And there's people that talk about the metaverse, right? But I think that most people have adopted the thought now of like, dude, this is already kind of here to some degree. Everyone, when you meet someone new, usually it's on Zoom these days. When you talk to someone, it's usually online. When you're communicating with friends, it's usually in a group text or whatever it is, right? So if you're doing these things over over the internet anyways, that sounds a lot like the metaverse. Maybe some of it gets better because it's it's more VR-based or whatever it is, but ultimately like a lot of our life is already online. So it's, it's only accelerated. Yeah. So the other thing off of that is like, how do you guys make money in doing this? Is it just subscriptions and, and membership fees? Yeah, pure subscription membership membership fees, yeah. Okay, and why don't you guys sell shoes directly to them? So we we maintain a member store. We will buy product and sell it to our membership, but we buy it for retail and sell it for retail. We don't mark it up because we, we don't believe in that as a business. We don't have formal accounts yet. Nike knows I'm going to be knocking on that door. I, I don't want to be a normal retail business. I do want to think through as we push push forward like how can we reinvent commerce and retail right where it's it's there's some sort of more of a synergy between brand and store versus like i sell you wholesale at 50 and then you sell it to your customers like what does that look like together and um that's what i'm exploring i, I think if i wanted to get a, a nike or jordan account we could really make it happen and push but i i want to do something more innovative with with these brands and the other thought I had, this is just me brainstorming here, and you can call me a complete idiot if you've already thought of this or if I'm totally wrong, yeah. but what about like financing? Have you guys thought about using your balance sheet and, and actually extending credit to people or no? No, I haven't. It's an interesting idea because like, you know, we, we see our, our churn down. Our, our churn is really low. It's 5%. But I see sometimes people are like, I have to leave because you make buying sneakers so easy that I'm not being financially responsible and I'm getting married. My wife is going to kill me or my girlfriend or whatever. I got, a, I got a baby coming that like, this isn't a good thing for me in my life, how accessible you guys make it. So I don't know if us putting out loans and credit for people who know they shouldn't be here is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also, it also muddies the relationship a little bit, right? It's, it's less than about community and it's, you know, you're, they, they owe you money at that point, which is different. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. It, it, it takes away from the feeling of like, hey, we're in this together to like, yo, you owe me money or the interest rates going up. Yeah, exactly. But I, I'm laughing because I saw on your website before earlier today that I think it was uh, the average member has maybe about 45 sneakers when they join. And then within six months, they buy another 25, which is hilarious because I could totally see someone complaining saying, hey, look, you guys make it too easy, right? Like I am buying too much stuff. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a funny complaint. And I, I, what am I supposed to do at that point? I just gotta let, gotta let people take their pause and come back. Dude, a, f- a 5% churn is pretty good though. That's like, that's like cell phone company territory. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. And it, you know, as a community business, you, you know, you deal with people's emotions and you know, it can go to five and a half and go to six, but it's something as we become more of a product company. And I say product from a technological standpoint, this stuff we can improve upon, but, um, Community building is hard. And I think a lot of people take it for granted and think, you know, if you spin off a discord, you now have a community, which I, I would uh, argue is not the case. Yeah. And so I think you mentioned that you had about a thousand users in March, 2020, and now you're up to about 7,000. Yeah. Uh, so just, you know, two years later, gaining about three and a half thousand a, a year at this point, how are you gaining these, these subscribers or these customers? Yeah. It, 
A lot of it early on was a mix of organic and paid social to just bring awareness um, to the company. The privacy, <laughs> the privacy changes on iOS screwed everything up for everybody. So we quickly pivoted to creators, influencers, YouTubers. And now I'm finding a game that that is not a strong acquisition engine because everyone's doing it, right? I, th I think it's kind of muddied the waters as far as like how many sponsored posts there is and, and, and ad reads and stuff like that. So again, I'm, I'm pivoting right now to content, like really real content creation. Um, I got some exciting news today. We're shooting the pilot for our next show um, with some great talent. I wish I could say it out loud right now, but I believe, you know, from that perspective, I'd rather invest a hundred thousand in an eight episode series for the culture that my real customer will appreciate versus put in a hundred thousand dollars into a paid social campaign that like, it's cool, but there's no, it's it, the longevity of that is very short and people know to kind of read through that. So for me to create a, an actual series that we can pitch to Netflix and have that live forever is, is much better asset. So that's how I'm kind of going about things going forward. Yeah. I, I think that's smart. I've talked to a bunch of people. I mean, there's, there's countless examples of people that built big businesses, right? Incredible businesses off the back of influencers or creators or whatever you want to call them. But yep. one example is uh, I had the SeatGeek CEO, Jack, on the podcast a while ago, one of the first few mm -hmm. episodes. And and like that's how they built their main business. And they still do a ton of that, but they really focused on micro-influencers, right? And another one that comes to mind is Manscaped. Like same kind of deal, right? Like they, they built their business on the back of these influencers. But to your point, I think people are slowly starting to realize now that like that's become extremely crowded. And there's yeah. the, the barrier to entry to create content online now is so low that one, it's going to become more crowded because more people are going to start creating content. But two, like, why don't you just do that for yourself? Why don't yeah. why doesn't the company start making videos or content or podcasts or whatever it is? Open your own brand or whatever it might be. I mean, look at what's happened to commerce in the last two years. We went from mostly shopping retail and commerce having slow growth to like doubling down on it. And it's we just expedited everything online in two years that um, it's just, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. And I, I've never seen more sponsored posts and ads on my Twitter and Instagram timeline than I have in my entire life before. And it's like, and, and part of me is like, I would give up my privacy again just to make sure they were relevant because I'm seeing stuff that like has nothing to do with me personally. Yeah, I realized too that it's gotten to that point of like the the algorithms either getting super lazy or there's just too many advertisers to feed, right? Because it's gotten to the point where like you know some of the ads you you get a dog bed ad and you're like I don't even have a dog, right? <laughs> I'm I'm an athletic subscriber and they keep shilling me the dollar subscription. I'm like, guys, if I see the dollar subscription one more time, I'm going to cancel because like I'm paying sixty bucks a month a year for this already. So like, just stop it. Yeah, I think uh, the, the athletic is notorious at this point for the dollar subscription and trying to shove it down people's throats. But yeah, and I um, love the it's, athletic. It's, I lo religiously read same. everything. Big fan. Tired of seeing the dollar ad. <laughs> yeah, same, same, same. Yeah. Because it frustrates me in the same sense as you as like, shit, I already did that deal and it's done, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm on to the whatever it is a month, uh, which is obviously more expensive. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah. funny. One of the other questions is like, you, you know, this has been what, four years at this point or three years at this point? Sure, yeah. Is there, is there a point that you guys thought you were going to fail or thought you were going to give up? Oh man, I definitely had a point of concern in right when the pandemic broke out, right? Kind of just like, holy shit, what is happening? I think a lot of businesses felt that way, but no, honestly, other than that, no, I mean, look, having a baby and scaling from 10 employees to, to 40 in a couple months, there was a point where I was like, holy shit, there's, there's too much going on. But now that I'm through that storm, I, I've never personally been more confident in like 
what we're building, who I am as, as a CEO and a founder and what we're trying to create for the space, because I, I really genuinely believe the industry desperately needs a champion like us. And I know we're on the right path because I see we're inspiring other businesses. Other things are being created for consumers. That's not just about resale and secondary in the secondary market, which is, it's great. I love competition, but I'm ready. Is there anyone that's doing exactly what you guys are doing? No, no. No, definitely not. But I'm sure someone might be thinking like, hey, if I take 5 million, I can replicate what, what Soul Savvy did and, and do a better job. And I would say, good luck. I think a lot of it is like subject matter expertise. And I couldn't have done this without a decade in the space. I couldn't be building this product without my my CPO who spent you know, five years at Apple and Amazon, who's a huge sneakerhead leading our product team, right? Like there's just, we have the right synergy and the right team in place to create for our audience that it's a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm very proud. Are you guys still on Slack or are you something else now? Slack. Yeah. We doubled down, formed a partnership with Slack. We got some things in the pipeline and uh, we went, we moved to their enterprise grid. And why did you guys do that versus building something in-house? Why spend millions of dollars to create a chat platform when it already works? I'd rather invest our money in the peer-to-peer marketplace that we've created, the, the iOS and Android app that we created, other things that, ex- that don't exist for our consumers when we have something that works great for us. And we were on Slack free for three years, didn't pay Slack a dollar. And we built an incredible product. And now that we've unlocked their API and everything, I'm like, we can do a great job. And um, look, building building product is hard. I don't want to build the chat platform. It's That's tough. Concurrent users, live, all that stuff. How many uh, users do you have to get to before Slack realizes what's going on? Oh, they we have I have a great relationship with Slack. Yeah, but if you were to start something new, like if someone came in and they started a group chat and it scaled to whatever, a few thousand members, are you supposed to like tell Slack immediately? Like how does that even work? No, no. We have a great relationship. I this is part of the, what I talked to them internally was like Discord is owning the community space. Everyone at Discord working. I don't think Discord's a community platform, right? And I believe Slack is, and that's what I said to them like we are your best case study to prove to the Salesforce overlords that Slack can be something other than a workplace tool. You just need to build some things around the edges. And that's what I'm kind of working towards with them is like, add this feature, put this in the pipeline and you guys will have a strong community product. Let me do my thing and I'll show you how to, how to build this. I get called a, you know, an idiot and a boomer for this, (laughs) but I I think Discord's user experience is, is not very good. A lot of people disagree with me on that because it's become so popular, but it's, it's for someone who like the test of time for me is always, if you give it to someone who's never used the product before, right? You just give it to them and you say, Hey, go write down everything that you like, or you dislike or any of this stuff. When someone uses discord for the first time, it's so damn confusing. It is, you have no idea what's going on. There's so many notifications. There's all these emojis flying around. There's people spamming your DMS, all this stuff. Right. So I totally agree with that. And I think that's somewhat of an unpopular opinion. But I'm not sure why, because it's it's pretty clear to me that that's the case. Yeah. And my biggest argument has been it's a live chat platform for a community to thrive. It needs to be async. So you need to come home from work, from kids, whatever you do and sit down and pull up into this chat, this platform and know where to pick up. Obviously, that's how we structure our Slack. But within Discord, man. Good luck understanding where the conversation is, who's talking about what, where, and and how you can contribute to it. Like I open it up, I'm obviously big into NFT Web3. I open up all my communities and I go, you know what, screw it. I can't do this right now. I, I, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. What about a year from now? Like if we did this again in a year, where would you guys expect to be? Oh, that's a great question. Right now, our platform is kind of in three different places. I want to combine that really make a solid product and then explore like what can soul savvy look like 
in other verticals? How can I bring other collectors together through a, a social marketplace where like I could trade my, you know, my LeBron James rookie card for my Air Yeezy ones because the value of it is the same. And that's probably totally off because the LeBron rookie card is probably worth a ton. But just a, a more curated marketplace experience around collectors and, and their experience where GMV isn't the, the defining metric of success. It's just like daily active user rates, a social engagement, just trying to build something new, but I want to do it right in sneakers and show people that like, again, collectors of any, in any space are why these spaces thrive. You need to pay attention to them, nurture around them because they dictate the rest and you can build from there with those people. You learn the most. Gotcha. And and the last thing I want to talk about and touch about is like you guys I've seen are doing some really cool things on the NFT side, right? Or what I'll call pushing the boundaries or like testing things. Talk to me a little bit about what you guys are doing in that space. Yeah. Yeah. We we're not trying to be a footwear company or, or a sneaker brand by any means, but we've done bespoke custom sneakers before. Last year in the summer, I said, kind of asked the question to, my, to myself and the team, like, what if we let the community make a sneaker from scratch? What would they design and create? Can we bring that to life? And what would that be like? And we did that. 180 people made a sneaker from scratch and we're releasing it soon. But then I also kind of said, how could we create a sneaker for our brand designed by industry heavyweights? Jima Wong, Justin Taylor, people in the sneaker space will know them, but they're responsible for some of the most popular Jordan models of the last decade across Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, et cetera, et cetera. And we wanted to work with them to make a shoe. And, and then as we were working on that product, we started thinking about like, how do we release this? What do we do with it? We don't want to just do a sneaker drop online like everyone else does. And I'm really big into into Web3 and NFT. I think there's a lot of crap going on in the space that's not good, but a lot of innovation, a ton of innovation and inspired me to think about how can we extend the life cycle of a product in commerce? So instead of you buying it and it getting delivered and that's the experience we're done as a brand and a customer, like how can I make you enjoy this for six months and what does that look like? And that's how we landed on a forthcoming NFT project. Gotcha. So if you don't mind, I want to compare it to one thing that I've seen that may be somewhat similar, but I assume that you think is very different. And I just want to get your opinion on it. So okay. one of the things that I've seen recently is StockX, what they're doing, right? And for those that don't know about this, you can probably explain it better than me. But my understanding of it is that they are issuing NFTs, right? They're minting NFTs. And they're basically backing them with a physical shoe. Mm -hmm. And then they keep the physical shoe in a vault. And yep. you can buy and sell and trade the NFT linked to the physical shoe. So basically it, it removes the storage costs associated with, you know, keeping shoes in your house. It removes the shipping times, shipping fees, all that type of stuff. But essentially they're treating the shoe as an asset, you know, an investable asset versus, you know. Yes. Yes. That's ex honestly, that's exactly what it's like. I still don't think it made any sense. And I don't know why anyone's buying it to, to be honest with you, because to me, what I've seen is it looks like it's the same people buying from the same people. And it's just this like circle of potential resellers reinvesting into each other's sneaker assets. I don't see any consumer having a need to buy the NFT, which is inflated and then hold it somewhere to sell it. Like it just, it, it's, it, it has made no sense to me. And um, I haven't seen it really take off within sneaker culture per se. I don't know if other people in different categories are looking at and going like, oh, this makes sense or not. But for me in this, in this space, it made none. And, and the difference is one, the community obviously aspect of it, but two, there's real utility behind yours versus theirs, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. So like our, let's call it the, the SS4, the Soul Savvy 4 NFT pass, right? When you mint the NFT, part of what you get in utility and access is a physical sneaker. You get the shoe that we will ship to you in June. So anytime between you know April and June when this releases, you can claim your physical sneaker in your size and we will ship it to you. But from again, from April to June, 
we want to look at it and go, what else can we do? We're going to ship people shirt, a hoodie and socks that matches the sneakers. So you kind of have an outfit waiting for you. We want to hold events for people. We want to create the next colorway and design with people who are holders of the NFT. So we can say, again, we have a shoe made by holders of this project. And again, just create more experiences around it. I don't have all the answers. It's an experiment for us. I want to see, but I think innovation comes with taking some risks and being okay with to fail. And I'm I'm ready for that because this industry has been doing the same thing for a decade, 30 years, nothing's really changed. So if we can try something that might inspire a bigger brand to take a risk as well and think about you know how you can use the blockchain for building customer loyalty and understanding who your customers are, there's like there's a lot of value in it, in my opinion. I just, I'm not Nike, right? Nike needs to do that. Yeah. Do you think Nike will do it? Them buying Artifact is very interesting. I've never seen Nike act with such confidence around anything like that before. I was shocked. I was shocked when they did that. Blown away. I wish I had five ETH laying around for a Clonex, to be honest with you. I would have bought one. But it was the fact that they, wasn't just that they announced the acquisition and super didn't say anything about what the hell they were doing it for, but they put the Nike logo, the Jordan logo, the Converse logo, and the Artifact logo beside each other and treated it instantly like one of their key pillars and brands. And I, that just blows my mind. So I'm very curious to see like, what are their plans? Are they going to try to mix physical and digital like, like we are? Are they going full digital? Is this an acquisition play for customers who have never thought about wearing Nikes before? Super curious. I have zero insight. I can only speculate, but it was, it was a massive news and obviously... Um, Adidas followed with their board ape and their NFT project as well. Yeah, I think one of the things is one, I love the idea of what you guys are doing. And I think you're thinking about it probably in the right way from from my mindset, because if you're open and honest with the community, right, like one of the things I'd always be concerned about if I was in your shoes would be about upsetting the community, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to do something that pisses off, uh, you know, a large percentage of the 7000 members that you guys have. That's like your guys holy grail. Uh, so, but, but I think if you're open and honest and you're like, hey, look, this is an experiment, right? No one's forcing you guys to buy it if you don't want to. We're testing it out and we're going to try to give you guys as much utility and value as we can. And I think that that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The thing about Nike is like, I was shocked that they did it, one, because they move faster than like any other brands in the space, especially larger brands, right? Adidas, as your point, has has followed suit and done similar stuff. But Nike's a $200 billion company, yeah. right? Like. One, it's difficult to move that fast. But the reason why I think that they did it is because of that same, that same market cap, which, right? Like if you're a $200 billion company, it's really, really, really difficult to find new lines of business that move the needle. Yeah. And the digital world is one of those for sure that can move the needle for a $200 billion company if you do it right. So I think it makes a lot of sense. It's going to be fascinating though to see what they end up doing. 100%. And like that, the risk they're taking is well worth it. I, I saw this somewhere on Twitter and I don't know who to credit, but it was like, we might look at Nike buying Artifact like when Facebook bought Instagram. Everyone kind of laughed at it and it's like, holy shit, Meta would, would be toast right now without Instagram as a platform. And not saying that's going to happen to Nike, but sometimes, again, you got to take risks and swing for the fences. And, um, you know, I do want to add on to what, what you said about kind of our audience. Like we are also releasing the shoe just as a shoe to people who just want to buy the shoe. We're not going to make people go full crypto because that's what we want to do. But again, if you want to try something new, want to, you know, experiment, want to be part of a journey that is, isn't just going to be us shipping you a sneaker, please try this out. The shoe's going to cost us $250 to make. So like at our mint price, like we're not doing this at 0.8 ETH to 
to make a bunch of money and then dip out of it. Like some things we've seen in the space, like it's generally an experiment and a learning process that I hope people will join us on. Nah, man, you're, you're the, you're the co-founder of a business. You spent years trying to build this community. I think anyone that listens to this or has probably heard you talk in other instances would agree that like you care about the community. You know what I mean? You're not trying to do something that hurts them or, or you feel like you guys are getting the better end on. So I think it's great, man. I think it's super excited. I'm excited to test it out and see how it goes and follow along. But that's it for today, man. How can I send people to learn more about you guys? Where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. You can find us on soulsavvy.com, 1V, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. Same social handle, handles everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, at soulsavvy. And I'm at DP16 on social media as well, if you want to track me down. All right, last question. What's the most you've ever spent on a pair of shoes? Can... Mm, my, my wife is listening. Can you stop the podcast? <laughs> stop listening to the podcast. All right. That's it for today. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you the straight answer. It's these Chicago Air Jordan 1s, 1985, original pair of Chicago Jordan 1s. They cost me 3500 US. All right. And you've worn them, you said? Yeah. I've worn them twice, but they're from 1985. So like I'm- You, you wore them in the house. <laughs> No, I actually wore them out in the rain. I don't know what I was thinking. Vancouver rain and with 1985, 35 year old sneakers was not my brightest move, but I, I just, I had to do it. I had to do it. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. Yeah. All right, dude. Thank you so much for doing this. I learned a lot about the business. I think it's fascinating. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. And I'm excited to to follow along and hopefully we can do this. Maybe we'll do it again at that year mark and see if your, yeah. if your predictions are true. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Of course. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.